Good morning, UCC. Man, I feel like I haven't been here for three months. I haven't been here for three months. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's good to be back. Um, we are in the midst of a sermon series using the Gospel of Luke to guide a season of reflection about what it means to, like, if we were, if we see the church as the body of Christ, it would make sense that we would look to Christ as the model for whatever we are as a group of people should probably mimic whatever he was in a very literal sense when he came and lived and moved and breathed and walked among us and did his ministry and died and was buried and was resurrected. Like there's something about all of that that should guide our own spiritual formation in a sense. And so we've been using the gospel of Luke to kind of walk through that. And last week I was here for the first time in three months and uh, heard Jeremiah talking about the good Samaritan and who is our neighbor. And he quotes my, one of my favorite poems. I'm not a big poetry guy, but one of my favorite poems, whatever it is that doesn't love a wall, something that doesn't love a wall. Quoted in one of my favorite movies, I will buy lunch for anybody who can tell me, not now, don't shout it out now, but can come out later and tell me where that, where that poem shows up in one of my favorite movies. So free lunch on me if you can tell me. Um, but I just love that poem, so got me there, and then as he kept walking through the message, I was like, man, he's like preaching all my thoughts for next week, so we're just going to essentially preach Jeremiah's sermon with a different target this morning. I have about 10 minutes of content, but every time I practice this, it's 40 minutes long, so, but I swear it's just 10 minutes of content. I don't know what's happening, but we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke and dive into... So last week, Jeremiah talks about who is our neighbor, and he starts talking about this idea of walls and fences, and obviously the play on neighbors. It's the thing that sits between most of us and our neighbors. It might be a decorative fence. It might be a privacy fence. It might be, but you know, we have these boundaries, and boundaries can be a very, very good thing and a healthy thing, and I would preach other sermons telling us to construct boundaries, and yet there are particular boundaries that happen to get in the way many times. Some of them are natural boundaries. Some of them are boundaries that are subconscious. We just kind of build them. Some of them are boundaries based on our trauma and our experiences. We build fences and boundaries. So when we consider who are our neighbor, who's our neighbor, Jeremiah invited us to consider, well, let's, let's start by not erecting these fences that separate us from our neighbor. And so then, you know, you look on the spreadsheet, and I was like, okay, so what's my task for this week? And he said, Jeremiah had given me the, the theme of unity and conflict. Um, and I was like, no problem. A <laughs> uh, couple different things you could talk about there. You could talk about the unity or you could talk about the conflict. I feel like I talked conflict last time I was up here, which was a long time ago. But nevertheless, I thought I would focus more on unity today. And it brought me right back to the same idea about walls. So we talked about neighbors last time. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I think about unity which makes me think maybe a little bit more internally. I don't want to only think about the church, but I think a little bit more internally when I think about unity, the theme of unity. And is it just me, or does that seem like an even bigger pipe dream than loving our neighbors? Like, sometimes I feel like unity inside the body is like, yeah, right. Like, that will ever happen. Like, I have a ten times greater chance of loving my neighbor than the church ever getting along. Right? So that was... That, that was where I started. And so then I looked at the passage, and I'm like, well, what passage out of Luke did Jeremiah suggest that I use? It wasn't a hard rule. I could have picked anything, but I'm like, let's see what, it, what he had. And the first verse of the passage he gives me is right out of Luke 9, verse 46. An argument 
arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. Good work, Jeremiah. <laughs> it's a pretty good opening line. And I think we've talked before here, um, like in, in our preaching and our sermon, I think we've reflected on the fact that the Havara, say Havara. Havara is the Hebrew word for a group of, of study partners, a group of wrestling friends. A Haver is a, is a friend. So a Havara is a group of those friends. So Jesus' posse, his group of 12 guys and a handful of ladies, that's his Havara. And we will forever be changed by the chosen now. It's the only thing we can picture biblical reality in. And yet one of the things that I've appreciated about, I, I have become a sucker for the chosen. We do a commentary on the podcast on it and all those things. So I've had to watch these things episode by episode and think critically about it. One of the things that I really love about what they've done is they've shown this dynamic of the diversity in the midst of Jesus' havara. I mean, Jesus goes out to call a group of his disciples, and he calls five, five boys from Bethsaida. I call them the Bethsaida boys on my tours. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip. They're from a fishing village of Bethsaida. Now, realizing that they could all be their own unique, complex individuals, I'm sure they were, if we made some historical assumptions, they come together from a particular worldview. They come from a pharisaical worldview. Now, they, they might have hated it or pushed against it or been rebels in their own right, but that's the world that they come out of. And then the very next person that Jesus calls in the Gospels is Matthew, a tax collector. You could not have chosen a more antagonistic partner for five boys from Bethsaida. Matthew is literally the guy who taxes them every day on their catch. So every day they come in, this is the, and Jesus says, come follow me, and puts them in the same group together. Which then he'll call a couple zealots, Simon the Zealot, I would say Judas Iscariot, I disagree with the chosen. I, I would say he probably comes from a zealot background. We at least have one, I think there's plenty of evidence to know we have two, whether it's Judas or not. There's two zealots amongst the group, also called with these people that have these very Greek names, which I think a good historical assumption would be they're probably more Herodian, a little bit more secular. So when we read these passages, and it happens a lot in the Gospels, right, where they're arguing about who's the greatest, and we all kind of roll their eyes like those stupid disciples. <laughs> Have you been on Facebook? <laughs> it's essentially a gigantic online public who's the greatest forum. Am I wrong? It's, here's my meme. Here's the link to my source for truth. Here's me posturing about why I'm right. Here's the, here's the tribes that I align with. Here's the, here's the us arguing about who's the greatest. See, when you realize that Jesus' havara is full of Republicans and Democrats, not literally, go with me here, conservatives and progressives, vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, and he puts them all together on purpose. He gets to choose what he builds his church on, and he doesn't choose a particular tribe. That in and of itself, by the way, is a huge lesson for the church. And, and even here, in this body, we can't say, we did it! Yeah, one of the, I have loved this church. It has been an oasis in my, in my spiritual experience. Because I've been a part of typical evangelical whatever world. And it's not what, we, what I experience here. I don't know what you all, but it's not what I experience here. And that's beautiful. 
But what that means is, you know the reason I don't experience here? Because they're all a part of a tribe that I would call home, generally speaking. I understand there's diversity of thought here. I understand. But we're, we, we all kind of belong to a similar... So even we have to look around and go, ah, we're missing a few disciples in the Havara. We're missing... It's just our natural bent to find affinity-based, ideological affinity-based groups to find safety for obvious reasons. I'm not even knocking it. I'm just saying it's worth a pause here to notice that when Jesus comes and establishes his church, he doesn't pick 12 guys and a handful of ladies that all agree with the social justice progressive agenda. He also picks some militaristic zealots. Conceal, carry, gun, right, toting. You know what I mean? Like, don't, don't freak out. Just appreciate, like they literally were packing. They have two daggers on the night when Jesus is betrayed. He says, you have any swords? And they say, we got two rumphea. Say rumphea. It's the Greek word for short sword. They have two zealot daggers because they have two zealots in the group. They're ready. I'm not kidding. I'm not being poetic when I say there was a couple that were packing. They were. They have an unbelievable sense of diversity. So when you read in the Gospels, that they were arguing about who's the greatest. Please catch yourself from rolling your eyes and going, those stupid disciples, because they're just like us. They're just like us. I guess I'm already 10 minutes in and I still have a lot of content. Don't know what's happening. <laughs> An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest, but Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for the least among all of you is the greatest. I don't use the Gospel of Luke much, and I need to use it more. Because there are some unique differences in Luke from the other synoptics. When Jesus taught this story before, what are you used to him saying? He welcomes a little child, pulls it amongst them, and he says, whoever becomes like a little child, right? That's what he says in the other two Gospels. Whoever becomes like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a child. Radically not what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. What does he say in the Gospel of Luke? Whoever welcomes. Well, that's, that's completely different. This teaching is not Jesus saying, I want you to become like them. He's saying, I want you to welcome them. Which I find interesting. Why would I welcome a child? Because a child does nothing. And why is this Jesus' response to the Facebook meme posting that's going on? Because a child doesn't do anything to my position. A child doesn't prove my point. I don't get anything from the relationship of the, the presence of the child. If I'm welcoming, like consider a child. It's one thing if we're like, oh, yay, the children, all that kind of stuff. Picture me welcoming, taking time out of my sermon to be interrupted. Welcome a child. It doesn't serve me in any way. I get nothing out of it. It doesn't prove my point. Whatever they were arguing about, none of the groups win by welcoming a little kid. What is Jesus getting at? And I went back to Jeremiah's thoughts about walls. 
Because there's something between adults and children that's just kind of a natural wall. It's not even a conscious, I'm not even sure it's a bad wall. That's not even my point. But there's just a natural wall between age and maturity, right? I'm 40. If you put a five-year-old next to me, there's a natural social wall in between us. So for me to welcome a child is me stepping over a wall, removing a wall, tearing down a wall in order to welcome a child in. Because there's a very natural, it's not going to be efficient, it's not going to be effective, it's kind of a nuisance. We see that in the other gospel accounts. Why in the world would I take time to welcome a child? And I get the whole like, man, you're really mean about kids. Yes, but, but I, I, like you can be nice, but I think even those that like, oh, we love kids, I think there's still this thing that Jesus is getting at about welcoming a child, like, to welcome a child, there, it does something to these natural social constructs. And then Jesus says this, which I'm still, this this phrase has been haunting me all week. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And all of a sudden it struck me that what Jesus is inviting us to do is have a relationship to him that is not based on what we get from his place in the relationship. Because brothers and sisters, that is exactly how we use Jesus. And I mean what I just said. We use Jesus. Like, we don't welcome Jesus like we would welcome a child. We use Jesus as the proof point for our positions. We use Jesus as a proof point for our ideologies. We invite Jesus because of what it does to the status of my spiritual place in the community. I'm on the winners. I'm hashtag winning because Jesus is with me. Right? See, there's something that Jesus is inviting us. I don't want you to have a relationship with me because of what it does to your place in the world. I want you to just have a relationship with me. See, there's something about unity that requires us to, so there's that poem that was quoted last week, something there is that doesn't love a wall. Before I constructed a wall, I would ask myself of what I was walling out or walling in. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, something that wants it down. Unity requires the, see, who is my neighbor requires an awareness, a social awareness that we don't construct walls. Unity invites us to actually consider which walls need to come down. Unity actually means I will have to proactively go after some walls. By the way, I, I'm also up to preach next week, so this is part one of a two-part conversation. Because apparently 40 minutes isn't enough to have this one. Because we're going to have to talk more about what this actually means. So we're going to kind of close things up and still kind of leave us hanging halfway through this conversation. And then Jeremiah referenced another passage where I was like, well, that's the right passage. So there you go. So we're going to go back to a passage Jeremiah talked about last week in Ephesians 2. Where did I start on the passage here? 14? Wonderful. For he is our... Man, I wish I would have started at 13. Can I read you 13? Who planned this? Who sent these passages in? But now in Christ Jesus, 
you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's verse 13. So we talked last year, we used the book of Ephesians to talk last year about what it meant to be the church, if you remember that journey. And we spent a lot of time talking about Ephesians 1 through 3, and what was the dynamic at play? You had these two groups that were not used to being together. You had Jews and you had Gentiles. And this New Testament community had brought these together in Christ, but these were not two groups that were used to getting together. Like one group doesn't eat kosher. One group doesn't follow cleanliness laws. And one group does. This makes for really awkward church potlucks. <laughs> right? This is what's driving Ephesians. And Paul is writing this beautiful letter. And so he speaks to Gentiles and he said, I'll read it again, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near... So what was there? There was a very natural wall between Jew and Gentile, between insider and outsider, between God's covenant chosen people and those who were not God's covenant chosen people. But now in Christ Jesus, those of you who were far off have been brought near. What are we doing? We're, we're finding walls that need to come down. Walls that were biblical, by the way. Those were biblical walls. They were based on a group of people's earnest devotion and desire to follow the text. Those were biblical walls. We don't like that, do we? We're like, no, no, they weren't reading the Bible correctly. Yeah, 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 but, but that's kind of the whole gig. There were these walls that had been used by God's people in the scriptures to construct these barriers. And Jesus said, it's time for those to come down. And there's no like long treatise or lecture about how bad the walls were or how wrong they were. Just Jesus' gentle voice. It's time for those to come down. Verse 14. For he is our peace. Speaking of Jesus. And in his flesh he has made both groups into one. So there used to be two groups, Jew and Gentile. But now he's taken those two groups and made them one. By the way, did he make them one by making them all uniform? Did he ask the, the Gentiles to become Jews? Did he ask the Jews to become Gentiles? No, because that's not unity. That's uniformity. And those are two radically different things. Uniformity means we just make everything the same. We just make everyone the same. We just all think the same stuff and become the same thing. But unity actually demands the distinctions. It demands the diversity, or it was never unity to begin with. Unity is where you see the distinction and still find a common bond that transcends the distinctions on another level. So unity is this thing that calls us to this other level rather than letting the distinctions be the thing that divides us. Unity transcends it and pulls it together. Unity demands the distinction. So there still is Jew and Greek. But we are now one in Jesus. This is one of the main themes of the book of Ephesians, is unity and oneness in the church. And yet Paul's talking about these two groups, but they've been made one in this new humanity. In this new humanity. I love that the NRSB translates it that way. Is that what we have up there? Made both groups one, that is, but maybe I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not quite there yet. Hold on. Stick with your notes, Marty. And he has broken down the dividing wall. So what has Christ done? He's went and found a wall. And he's broken it down. That is the hostility between us. So there was hostility. And that doesn't mean like hatred. It just means hostility. There was like we're not the same. 
We're not the same. You're you and I'm me, and that's great, and, but we're not, we're not the same thing. But, but Jesus has broken down that wall and done something to that hostility that kept us apart. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create, there it is, that he might create himself one new humanity. Thank you, NRSV. Love that translation. In place of the two. There used to be two different humanities. Jewish humanity, Gentile humanity. Now there's just Jesus humanity. All God's people said, yeah. And might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. Is that where I stopped? Fantastic. Actually, I think I go, nope, that's where I stopped. Excellent. So there's the same idea of Jesus teaching us what it means to find the walls that create divisions of hostility and remove those, tear those down, step over them. We're all arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus says, how about you learn from welcoming a child? How about you learn from bringing in somebody that you won't get anything from? You won't garner any points. You don't win because you, you just, I mean, we all win, obviously. But my point is, I don't win my argument about who's the greatest because I welcome a child. The Jews don't win by welcoming in all you stinky Gentiles. I'm always joking about that, and that joke's no longer landing. So I'm going to stop using that joke from here on out. But you get my point. Their perspective is, we're the holy. We've been doing this for thousands of years. We're the clean. We're the Torah observant. They don't get anything, the Jews. Their synagogue just got real complicated. And they don't have other synagogues. They didn't have Christian synagogues and Jewish synagogue. They had synagogue. And there's a whole group of people in synagogue that are telling the Gentiles to come to synagogue. And you're a part of the family. Do you realize what that does to church service? makes it a little awkward. That group doesn't win by tearing down a wall and welcoming in a, lit, a, a, a spiritual child in Gentile. It made me think of one more passage. A plus for my transitions this morning. Jeremiah also brought this up, and I thought it would be great to close with this as we move towards the Lord's Supper comes from 1 Corinthians, which 1 Corinthians already is a letter all about division. Like the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians are Paul just dealing with like, you all have your groups and your tribes, and this group is like, well, I was baptized by Paul, and I was baptized by Apollos, and other groups are like, well, I follow Priscilla, and other groups are like, well, I follow Jesus. <laughs> and you have all of this like division and Jesus juking, and which tribe do I belong to, and which podcast do I listen to, and which whatever, and blah, 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 blah. And we, ha we have all these divisions, right? And so Paul's dealing with that. And ultimately this conversation culminates in this passage that we quote all the time when we take the Lord's Supper. Not necessarily here in this church, but it always has just, I, I've always just grimaced every time we quote this passage. Because I feel like we always forget the context that we're quoting when we go to the Lord's table. Because Paul is letting them have it. And we quote it every time, like just like the cool, fun passage. And this is Paul, like, he's furious at the Corinthian church. Listen, listen to this. Starting in verse 17. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. 
How could coming to the Eucharist table be a bad thing? Paul's like, what you're doing makes this worse, not better. Not even this table can save you from what you're doing to it. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. I think that's sarcasm, but I'm not going to get bogged down on that. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. One goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. They must have used bigger cups. So in the early church, when they came together, it was more of a meal. Josephus even references these love feasts. There's a lot of discussion. Is that even what's happening? At these con- but when they get together for the Lord's Supper, it's like you've brought your own stuff like we used to in COVID. And we would bring our own elements to the park. Right? So imagine if you bring your own elements and, and, and the wealthy families are over there and they've got like a spread. Like they got like, like lunch and more than enough. And we have other families that don't even have enough to buy the elements. Like imagine how screwed up that gathering is. On some level, that gets us close to what must be happening in Corinth. There are these divisions, and some have excess. And Paul's like, this very moment, this very moment is supposed to be you telling the world what the body of Christ looks like. And you have divisions? and inequity, and injustice. Whatever you're doing is not the Eucharist. What? Exclamation point. Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the, for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you for this? In this matter, I do not commend you, in case you were curious. For I received from the Lord, but I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new, is, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in this act, there's something that we are proclaiming to each other, to anybody watching, but there's a proclamation in this act of this is what the death of Jesus brings about. This is what the body of Christ looks like. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable to the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat the bread and drink the cup. For all who eat the bread, excuse me, for all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. So that's pretty heavy to close that passage off with. Be careful how you, when you come together, make sure you're discerning this moment. Because if you don't and you take this incorrectly, you drink judgment on yourselves. And there's this phrase in there that always apparently just stumped all of the church communities I was ever a part of. Discern the body. So what does that mean, to discern the body? A lot of people focused on the examine yourselves part of it. So you, you do this soul searching. That was a large part of what I grew up handed. Like when you take communion, make sure you're, you're, you're searching yourself. Examine yourselves, Paul said in the verse prior. 
But what did he mean when he said discern the body? I've I've been a part of other more higher church, more reformed traditions that I was raised in. We only took communion once every four months because it had to be super special. And there was something in that community that was more about discerning the elements, which I'm not even sure what I was supposed to be discerning because we weren't even Lutheran or had any, you know, substantiation issues. We were just like holding the bread. And I'm not sure what I was supposed to discern, but I was supposed to discern the elements. Bread. Body. I, I don't know what I was supposed to do. But, but Paul has been talking about a body for 11 chapters. What is the body that Paul has been talking about? The church. The body of Christ has been the topic of Paul's conversation for the entire letter. What did he just get after them for? Divisions, groups, how they were taking. When he says discern the body, he says, I want you to look around and and examine and discern your community and make sure that when you take this, you're proclaiming the right message to yourselves and, and to anyone in the world who's watching. Which means it sounds to me like Corinth had some wall tearing down to do. Because that's what unity demands. Unity, how do we love our neighbor? Well, let's not erect walls. Okay, how do we love ourselves and find unity? We're going to have to actively, proactively tear walls down. We will have to tear walls down. I would assume that will probably even go for University Christian Church in Clifton, Ohio. And those walls could be in a lot of different places. But you will, ne- you will never stumble into unity, not true unity. Like the Spirit of God will be working among us and it will be beautiful and you'll, you'll find like all this. Congr- but a whole body of people will never just like wake up and be like, unity! It's something we will have to actively, proactively pursue And the pursuit of that will require removing fences, tearing down walls, stepping over barriers. I love the work of undivided that the group is partaking in. There's a proactive, I have to actually give my energy to finding ways of finding walls I didn't even know was there, tearing down walls that that exist, stepping over walls that this has to be a part of what we do. And I, and, I, and I promise there will be walls that are hiding for us in corners. I've seen them. I've experienced them. I have them. I'm guilty of them. But there's stuff that God wants to do with this church. Beyond this moment. Beyond just where we've been. There's something that God wants to do with this church moving forward. I promise. I promise. I don't know what it is. I won't tell you what. But I promise that God wants to do something with this body of believers here. We're a a part of the body of Christ here in Cincinnati, and God wants to do something with this room and those of us in this room. And whatever that is, it will require along the way finding walls, maybe maybe even biblical walls, maybe even walls that were constructed because the Bible says. But we've been wrong about what the Bible says before. Thank you for chuckling at that. I was I got real nervous about that line. But we have. We've been wrong before. We'll be wrong again. Remember Peter in the book of Acts? See, now I'm going into content that's not even in my notes. Remember Peter in the book of Acts? The sheet comes down, rise, kill, and eat. He's like, no. Like, he knows his Bible. 
And yet there were things that his understanding of Bible had led him to do, which was keep all those Gentiles out. And God's like, I never actually said that. I told you not to eat an alligator. That's in the text. It says reptiles. I'm assuming it was an alligator. I got offered alligator just a couple weeks ago on book tour. I was like, I can't, sorry. Kosher. <laughs> but, uh, right? I, I told you not to eat an alligator. I didn't tell you that those who in invited you to eat alligator were bad too. I just told you not to eat alligator. I didn't tell you not to have dinner with the people that eat it. And Peter goes, <gasps> biblical walls that actually need to come down in order for Jesus to do the things that Jesus wants to do in the world. There might even be some of that in our own world today. And we'll have to listen to the Spirit of God moving in all of us, in all of us together, to find out what those things are. I don't even know how long I've been talking, but let's pray. Jesus, unity is hard. It's always been difficult. Um... It's just so easy to find a group of people that agrees and create a safe space because the disagreement is dangerous. And in this world that we're living in today, it's literally dangerous. And I don't know how in the world we'll ever fix that. But if there's any hope, it's in the gospel. Always has been. The gospel has been the only thing that's pulled this off. Nothing else has. No no social revolution, no political, you know, reconstruction, no ideology has accomplished this, but the gospel, the power of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of your, your covenant community of people, that's, that's worked before. God, I don't know what you would call UCC in Clifton, Ohio to do. It might not be grand. I think we always think the thing you want to do is big and outlandish and huge. And the thing you have for us might be something really small, but incredibly significant. It might be just a handful of names and lives we haven't even met yet. But they'll stumble into the room and you've given us their journey and their life and their name and their story to steward. And you want us to love them well and show them mercy and compassion and create for the first time maybe ever in their life a safe place to just bump up, bump up against the presence of God. If that's all you gave us to do, it would be enough. So I, I, I pray we're ready for that. that. That we are letting ourselves be remade into followers of Jesus that are everything you need us to be for somebody else that needs us to be exactly who we are. And we know we'll never be perfect. We, we're going to say a confession here right in the moment, Jesus, because we screw this up every week. And so every week that confession is right and fitting. But we're also being made new every week. And there are, more, there are far more moments of redemption, whether we choose to believe that or not. There are far more moments of redemption in our lives then there is failure and sin. The grace is winning. It always has been winning. Paul said in Romans, if, if sin can enter the world through one man, how much more can grace undo 
through one man the sin we struggle with. God, would you, would you give us hope to believe that that might be true for us? And would it change the way that we worship and change the way that we walk and change the way that we fellowship and change the way that we interact with walls? Jesus, thanks for loving us and asking us to be more like you in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.